Episode 12, everyone. Welcome back to Two Nobodies. This is our first video episode. So, you know, I trimmed my ear hairs and trimmed my nose hairs. and I did no pick. grooming at all. Yeah, well, I guess you don't know what Kyle looks like before. I think just nothing. bad. Just always bad. Just like okay. this. Disheveled. Okay. That, that's a good word. Disheveled. <laughs> uh, so we're really excited to sort of bring this podcast to video. I don't know if we're going to do it every episode. I think like for sure with the guests, Kyle and I have committed that we will do that. Um, but as far as when it's just Kyle and I, we'll, we'll kind of see how that goes. But um, but the reason why we're doing video also is today is, uh, well, this is our second guest and it's Tim Grant and we're going to bring him in shortly. But before I do that, I mean, Kyle, you already jumped in. How was your week? How have things been going? Yeah, week was good. Um, a little hectic. Uh, just feels super busy these days. I don't really know. Like, um, So it was a good week, but uh, yeah, nothing spectacular, which is such a boring answer. And it's my answer every week, it feels like, which is too bad. How about you? Well, you're on the clock right now. Like, I mean, you've got a week before, like yeah. at least technically, and then we'll see what happens. But Yeah, yeah, that's right. The countdown is on, so preparations and all that stuff. So that's taking up most of our time, I suppose, yeah. Car seats in? Car seats in. Both are in now, which um, we drive with like a family sedan <laughs> and I understand now why people get minivans. Um, cause room is at a premium man. I don't know how but I've been in your car though. Your car's pretty comfy. Like you got some pretty comfy. Seats it's a, it's a roomy yeah. family sedan voluptuous. Yeah. Maybe it's like a voluptuous family <laughs> sedan. So there's lots of room as far as sedans go. But when you compare it to like a van or l- lately, there's been like a real move to get sort of larger SUVs back on the road. So mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, like Subaru and Kia and all these manufacturers are now producing again, big SUVs, yeah. which is sort yeah. of weird, but, um, so there's a lot of options for more room and our car does not, does not have it. Well, I don't it's know if small. you know this in Alberta, 80% of new sales are in SUVs and trucks. And that like trend holds consistently across Canada, not maybe as high as 80%, but the majority of new vehicle sales are, are SUV and trucks. And I'm pretty sure the United States is very similar. Is that is that true with historical? Like, I feel like, well, in Alberta, anyways, no. people are always buying trucks. Well, oh, perhaps maybe in Alberta that might be true, um, but it's definitely shifted away, shifted away from cars. Um, so, yeah, are you guys gonna? Are you thinking about buying an SUV? Or um, we're gonna see how it goes with with this car. I hate car shopping. I don't know if anybody's ever gone car shopping before. It's the worst. It's not. It's a, It's that stupid little game. Like, if you go into a dealership, which I bought my car. Not new, it was pre-owned, but from a dealership. Mm-hmm. And so you play that stupid little game where you go in and like the salesman's like, hey, here's a car. And you're like, how much is it? And he's like, well, that depends. And then you have like a back and forth. Yeah. And finally he gets to a price or something. And then he has to go talk to his manager to get approval on it. It's all <laughs> bullshit. And they uh, just like, how come it's not like, here is the thing. Here's what the well, thing costs. Pay the money to get the thing. Well, you can okay. like, I mean, if you have the money to buy a Tesla, you can do it that way. You can buy that online. But I don't but, have money to buy a Tesla. No, I, I, well, fair, fair I mean, enough. How but, much like is there a Tesla? are there are more there are more dealerships now or more companies that are thinking about doing the online model. Where because like for Tesla, it doesn't matter who you know, as far as as far as so they say anyways. There's no negotiation. What it is, what it is. What does it cost to buy a Tesla? Well, Tesla Model Three in canada can start at is that the car yeah so the model three is like the the smaller car and then if you wanted like something bigger that would be like the model x or the model s 
So okay. th- th- that's like, those are like the really expensive ones. So like the cheapest car is the Model Three and the Model Y. The Model Y is like a more of a compact kind of SUV. Um, that probably starts at about fifty-five Canadian. That's less than uh, I thought. Yeah, but I mean, it runs you up. Like when you start adding things, so like I would yeah. say like a decent, decent. You're probably going to be paying about sixty-five to seventy. But if you buy um, like like go look at a like a brand new Toyota. What's a Toyota van? Toyota Sienna. Sienna, there you go. So yeah. we look at a brand new Sienna, they're fifty grand probably. Like cars are just expensive. Yeah, just no, not... and yeah, I mean I, I think I think EVs are the prices are definitely coming down, still not there. But if you wanted like the higher end model S, model X, I actually <laughs> I priced this out every now and then because it's definitely like my dream car. Um it could run you up to about hundred and eighty thousand for like the fully loaded Model S, Model X, and these things are just. What about the Joe Rogan? Joe that? Rogan. Joe Rogan talks about the Tesla saying he's like, he's like, it makes all the other cars just look stupid. Like, <laughs> so just does he big. have one? I think so. Yeah, uh, um, that's two I episodes heard. in a row that we've talked about Joe Rogan now. Or no, maybe not. Two out of three we've we've mentioned Joe Rogan. Oh, I don't remember. Um, um, so what? Yeah, so, where, where's the truck? And how much is that weird looking truck? The Cybertruck's supposed to come out. I think later this year it's being produced in Austin, Texas. Um, yeah. How much is that one? I think it's around 70, 75. I mean, if you get like a fully loaded, like, like a Ford F three fifty, you're not getting it for less than that. Probably. Oh, I think there's going to be no reason for people in about three, four years for them not to buy an EV because not only will there be a price comparison, but just from a performance standpoint, um, they're going to be much better than than a gasoline vehicle. So, And then people have range anxiety and stuff like that, but that's definitely improving. That too, range so. will have to increase over time. Oh, right? like, well, yeah. battery density is, is increasing and there are, not only are they bringing down the cost of batteries, but they're trying to focus on density so you improve range. But at the end of the day, most people are driving, you know, to and from work, and you yeah. can easily meet that on, on, uh, on any electric vehicle right now. So yeah, probably like ninety nine percent of the trips you take, that car is just fine. Absolutely, but, but yeah. they, it's that one percent that people yeah, are worried yeah, about. Yeah, everyone just worry about yeah, for sure. Which I guess makes sense because you don't want to like rent a vehicle when you when you spent seventy grand or one hundred eighty. No, for sure. So on for sure. a car, you don't want to you don't want to um, you know have to go rent a car to go further. Than five it, hours if you've got a Tesla, then you're pretty much safe. Like if you're talking about from where we live in Edmonton. If you wanted to go down to Southern California, you're good because there's a Tesla. There's a Tesla roadway essentially that you can connect to. Um, nice. But I mean, there's other parts of of Canada or other remote parts of the United States where charging stations are, you know, not as common. So, so that's a really long way of saying my week was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your week's okay, and we should probably get to Tim. <laughs> totally. Twenty minute introduction. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah, so we have we have Tim Grant. Uh, he's waiting. He's going to be uh, joining us really soon. We're really excited to have him on on the show. Um, you'll hear from his experiences just just incredible amounts of leadership experiences. Really quality uh, individual, and uh, we're just looking forward to talk to him. So hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, so we've got our 
second guest of our podcast today. His name is Tim Grant. And I'm going to give, Tim, before we start our conversation, I got to give the audience a little bit of a background on yours. Um, I'm not going to read through your very lengthy and prestigious bio, but I'm going to give a little <laughs> few snippets here. Uh, Tim commanded the Canadian troops in Bosnia and Afghanistan. He received the Meritorious Service Cross by the Governor General for his leadership in Afghanistan. He was awarded the Officer in the Order of Military Merit, which recognizes outstanding and exceptional service members of the Canadian Forces. He retired as a Major General in the Canadian Forces in 2008, which I believe is the third highest rank. Um, I don't know, Tim, why you didn't make it to General, but that's another conversation perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then... You know, he just couldn't stop serving, so he joined the Alberta Public Service as an assistant deputy minister, first to energy, where he was responsible for electricity, alternative energy, carbon capture storage, and then became a deputy minister in 2011, led multiple departments, and then appointed as an executive in residence at the Alberta School of Business, and then returned back to the public service, where he's currently the public service commissioner. So, Kyle, I feel like uh, we have an under underachiever on our hands. <laughs> what an impressive <laughs> list, Tim! Wow, well done. I'm going to say I'm going to say I am an underachiever because the reason I actually left uh, the military at that illustrious rank uh, was I couldn't speak French well enough. Um, That's what so, always does it, eh? Yeah. So, of all <laughs> the, all the things that I could do, speaking French was not one of them. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, like you go from the military and then to the public service and then leave and then come back. Like, where does this feeling of needing to serve come from? Like, how did that how did that start with you? And why do you feel like you have to continue? At some point, you must be getting tired of just serving others. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And I had a, a friend who's passed away now, Willie Grieve, who was the uh, chair of the Utilities Commission um, here in Alberta for uh, a, a number of years. He had, he had a theory that, that you can divide people into two groups. One is uh, you're, you're involved in commerce, the trading, stock market, you're making money. And the other group is a guardian group. And it, it's based on a, a U.S. Uh, sociologist's um, thesis. And for, for the life of me, I can't remember her name. But, but essentially, I, I put myself in that guardian uh, category. Mm -hmm. So, you know, military, police, firemen. Those kind of people who are looking out to um, protect others um, and serve others on a go-forward basis. So, um, not that it, one is you know commerce is bad, guardians bad, whatever is you know either is good. It, it is what it is, and I just think I fall into that uh, service. I think I learned a lot of it from my my parents, from my dad. He had mm -hmm. served in the military, and. Uh, so it, it, it just seemed easy. I, I would say, Rupesh, though, that uh, when I left the military, I was offered uh, positions in the private sector okay. and, and um, could have made more money without question. Uh, but I, I will tell you, I was uncomfortable because it was a weird world. I wasn't used to the private sector. I, I really was used to... Um, uh, public service. And so I, I, I kind of say I took the coward's way out. Eh? I took the, the, the thing that I knew best, which was right. uh, public service. And, and it, the other part is when I got out of the military, I, I was working in Ottawa. My family was all here in Edmonton. And uh, I decided I needed to come back here. And, you know, the provincial government provided me a job, uh, offered me a job here in Edmonton. So it, everything just kind of lined up nicely. But I, I think it's been just a uh, a lifelong um, 
you know, the right thing to do in my mind is to help others where you can make a difference. So, so you said coming from your, your parents, your, your, your dad was in the military. So that kind of was a continuation of there. I, you know, I, I, I've, I've read up and learned a lot about these amazing leaders and these great people. And they say that there's something that you can kind of trace back to your childhood or your early days that sort of says, this is what you should be doing, or this is something that you're passionate about. Was, so was it just really like that, the fact that your dad was sort of in the military and kind of um, maybe inspired you or, or kind of taught you about that? Or was there something uh, that you felt deep within inside you that you felt like the, the armed forces and maybe the public service kind of taps into? I, I wish it was that deep. Um, okay. You know, there's seven kids in my family, three boys and four girls. Uh, my oldest brother, Ed, Ed, he, he would not be surprised if I said this on a podcast. It's a little bit left wing, right? He, uh, he's the guy who had long hair and a ponytail his whole life. And, uh, you know, um, bright guy, um, lots of um, postgraduate degrees and that kind of stuff. But um, it, I, I'm not sure at a young age that I knew I was going into military or it was something that it was specifically, you know, my dad said you should do this. I actually had other plans coming out of university. I was actually, my brother, oldest brother is actually a geologist and mm. uh, he uh, was uh, prospecting for gold in Northern Ontario. And I actually wanted to go and join him. So that's why I focused my degree on in university, but it, it just didn't work out for me. And the only place I could get a job on short notice was in the army. And mm. uh, I kind of joined thinking that I would, you know, do this until I got a real job. Um, which didn't happen until 31 years later at, at the end of the day. But uh, I, I think it's something that slowly grows upon you. You, you sort of begin to feel comfortable in an area or a, a way of life. And, and for me, it was, um, I, I was always used to, as I say, a big family, seven kids in seven years. For any, for any fathers who think of this, um, my mom had five kids in 30 months. So it was uh, my, my oldest brother and then two sets of twin girls and then me and my youngest brother. But, you know, it was it was you're living in in a small group and you learn how to get along and you learn group dynamics. And back then you had to play together, fight together, whatever, the, mm -hmm. whatever it was. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it really um, I, I think it was just a natural progression for me that the military didn't scare me. I'd seen my dad in it. I'd seen what it had done for him. Um, and it, there, there probably was some fate, some karma, some, you know, um, whatever it was that kind of drew me in that direction. And then it just solidified over time once I was uh, wearing a uniform. Hmm. Was your father yeah. in a leadership role in the military? Yeah, so he he had a, a unique um uh, career. He had, he had served in the Second World War as an officer, and he was one of the um, the, the leading, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it, um, the group that invented radar in, for the Battle of Britain. So mm -hmm. he was, uh, he served in, in Britain throughout the war, and he was involved in setting up the, the, the radar line so that they could see German bombers and, and fighters coming across the canal. Um, and as an officer, he had a, obviously a leadership role but when he came back to Canada, there was a whole bunch of things happened and there was the, the military was too big. Um, so he he ended up um, giving up his commission as an officer and, and started to work as a sergeant, uh, working on heavy radar systems across northern uh, Canada. So at that time, looking to, you know, detect Russian bombers, you know, during the Cold mm -hmm. War days. 
but he rose to be a, a chief warrant officer, the highest rank for soldiers or airmen at that time. So, yeah, he always did have a have a leadership role. And um, even when he got out of the military, he uh, he actually became the commanding officer of a cadet corps, an air cadet squadron in uh, in Sudbury, Ontario. And, uh, you know, turned all of his leadership skills and traits into, you know, taking a, a very small and probably not very successful organization and, you know, quadrupling its size and building a band and all kinds of, of stuff. So, yeah, throughout his life, regardless of what his rank was or his position was, he, he always did sort of, um, display those leadership skills that, um, that we all kind of strive for, I would say. Really Didn't interesting. We... I, oh, uh, no, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Kyle. No, go. I just read a book about um, Winston Churchill's first year in, in office, which happened to be the first year that I think Germans started bombing London on a nightly basis. And all the efforts that went into uh, detecting where the planes were coming from using radar, but also scrambling um, their system so, so that they would think that they were dropping a bomb on a town or a, a um, plant or something, but they would actually be dropping it in the middle of a field. Or um, They would go out and light in, incendiary fires in the middle of a field um, so that the bombers would think that it's a marker fire uh, and they would hit that field as opposed to the, mm. to the towns. And just incredibly interesting time uh, for your father to kind of be involved in that work. I mean, what a... like. As far as points in history go, that's a pretty big one. <laughs> well, well, it is, and it's 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 funny. We had we knew about this. He had talked a little bit about kind of what he had done and how he had done it. But you kind of think, well, yeah, it's you know what what kind of role do you have? But um, year years later, we we're going through after he died, we we're going through some of his his papers, and there's a a scroll that there is signed by Winston Churchill, sort of saying to all of the people who were involved in the. The radar war kind of as the unsung heroes of the Battle of Britain. So it's yeah, kind of neat. It kind of brings it home. Yeah. Um, I was just going to come back to your dad, Tim, a little bit. Like Kyle and I have talked about sort of the the role our dads have played in our lives, and just you know that uh, sense that both of our dads have uh, have been present in our lives very much. So, and I always have wondered about you know military families and fathers and sort of the presence that they play on their kids, like, what would you say that was like for you growing up with your dad? Like, was he, was he a present person and how did, has that affected you at all? Or I, I would say there were, there were times for sure he was, he was present, but you know, there's a couple of, op of occasions where he actually had to take post things away from us. So he would go to an isolated location in Northern, Northern Ontario, Northern Canada, um, where families weren't allowed to go. So we would stay in the South. He would, he mm -hmm. would be gone for, uh, you know, two years or three years. And, and so we kind of had to manage on our own. Uh, but when he was there, he was, he was very much there. You know, I mean, the things I remember as a kid is, you know, going fishing with him. I mean, he mm -hmm. was a kind of an avid outdoorsman, loved to fish and, you know, to be able to go out and, you know, spend some of that quality time with, with your dad and, uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one with him. Yeah, those were, um, those certainly made up for any of the times that he was not there. Mm. I, I, I think, uh, you know, in a similar vein though, I've, I've been away, um, from my family a fair amount when I was the, the last years I was in the military. So we moved from Calgary to Edmonton in, uh, 2000 or uh, 1996 
and sort of the, the 12 years from then till 2008 when I got out of the military, I was actually gone for seven years. You know, wow. Not seven years straight, but a year here, whether it was working in Ottawa or deployments overseas. And, and, I, and I bugged my daughter, who's now in her mid-30s, she, like she's your age, right, guys? Um, and, and she says, you were never, whenever she gets mad, you were never here. <laughs> okay, great. When are we going to get over that piece? Right. Um, but it is one of those things that if, if, if you're not there, um, it weighs on you. You know, what are you doing? Luckily, I had a really strong wife who, who managed the kids. But when you come back, you just want to make sure that you, you do play that role and you're as, as involved as you possibly can be. Yeah. So what would that look like? Because I would imagine that'd be really difficult for you, right? Like you, you go on these, you know, you served overseas, you go on these trips and then you kind of come back and have to sort of reinsert yourself. Like, do you remember what those feelings were like or what you kind of told yourself about like, okay, how do I sort of reintegrate with my daughter? And Yeah, it, it, it's funny you say that because I used to tell this story to soldiers. When, when we were deployed and soldiers would be coming back home, I used to always say, tell them the same story that um, the first time I was away, I came back home. And at that point, we had a, a big golden retriever, and uh, which was sleeping on my side of the bed. Um, and sort of, you know, went up to, to get in bed and the, the dog growled at me, right? <laughs> because I wanted to get in. And uh, golden retrievers don't actually growl, but I'm thinking like, what is with this? So the dog and I had a long chat about um, <laughs> who was who actually in charge. Um, but it, it really drove home the fact that um, whenever I was away, you had to actually work yourself back up the, the food chain, right? Mm. Uh, first of all, it was tell the dog it's my bed, not her bed. Um, but after that, it, it's, it's very much a, a – it was a process of, um, you know, the, the, the kids, um, my wife had a routine. They had a structure in their life. And me coming back, whether it was for, you know, four weeks of, uh, of R&R or it was coming back home to do a job full-time, you, you had to I, – I found anyway, you had to – be fairly nimble and, and thoughtful um, about how you were reintegrating yourself back into that home life. Because as I said, yeah, you know, if you're way that, that amount, they have routine, they have rules. Mm -hmm. they, life that, doesn't and stop, right? Does not. Yeah. yeah. And, and you yeah. can't just pop yourself in and out and sure. say, you know, we'll do it my way when I get home. Cause that just doesn't work. Yeah. 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 yeah and, and, and I'm assuming too, at the same time, you're balancing just, you know, you're leaving from a situation. It's not like you can just turn off what you just came from, perhaps, right. especially if it was a, a mission that, you know, had, you know, enormous consequences or something like that. Yeah. It, and it, it, you're, you're absolutely right, Rupesh. It's when you come back for, you know, two weeks of, of R&R, <clears throat> your mind is still on the soldiers you've left behind and, and mm -hmm. what's happening in that location. But, but even when I was serving here in Edmonton, um, I was uh, uh, had some senior leadership positions here in the Army of the West, and when we first sent large numbers of troops into Afghanistan in uh, 2005, 2006, <clears throat> I was I was in charge of all the soldiers left behind. I had trained those soldiers to go overseas. That had been part of my job, and but I remember you would get you know phone calls in the middle of the night because it was 12 hours difference between uh, Afghanistan and, and Canada where we were here. 
and you get these phone calls in the middle of the night and you know there's been an injury there's been a death there there's been some um tragic action that's taken place mm -hmm. in theater and so even at those times it had an impact on my family as uh, you know because i wake up to the phone call in the middle of the night so does my wife you know it just it, it would be tough on everybody to live through those circumstances and if all that, if if any good came out of all that, though, <laughs> actually, when when I was in Afghanistan, so I was there for about ten months uh, commanding the mission. What it did is caused my daughter to learn to read the papers and pay attention to the news. <laughs> she was all worried. She was all worried about what was happening. But uh, yeah, it was it was funny. My wife said, "Yeah, every day she would flip through the news, go online, see what was happening." Oh and my so, goodness. I yeah, can't so. even imagine what she, yeah. Yeah, I can understand yeah. maybe the reaction she probably <laughs> yeah. gives towards you now. That makes more sense towards you. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. on that topic of Afghanistan, uh, as I understand you were brigadier general in Afghanistan from about November, 2006 to August, 2007. Right. Um, so two months before you, uh, take on that role, uh, the Canadian military in, I think Kandahar launches operation Medusa, um, which at the time was Canada's largest combat mission in something like over 50 years, involved over a thousand members of the Canadian <laughs> Armed Forces. Uh, and I, I think ultimately, uh, so Medusa pushes um, some members of the Taliban out of a desired district. Um, and then, so then two months later, you come along. Um, and then shortly thereafter, so December 2006, Operation Falcon Summit is, is uh, launched. And so Medusa versus Falcon Summit, from what I could read anyways, um, seemed to be two fairly different operations. You know, so Medusa seemed a little bit more, um, it would use heavy firepower a bit more, whereas um, Falcon Summit used more small infantry units searching villages in cooperation with locals and tribal elders. And so the question is, as a leader, you come into this new role for you, um, but it's a mission that's over five years old at, at this point, and you come in right after Operation Medusa. And then you start commanding troops in an operation like Falcon Summit, w w which takes a bit of a different approach. Yeah. And I'll admit, I'm a little ignorant to um, to military operations in general. My dad and, and, and um, my uncle um, were both American, and they both served in Vietnam. But I don't have much exposure to it outside of that. But I would imagine, so strictly from a leadership perspective, that there's a lot going on there and a lot to consider and a lot of different variables that go uh, beyond the standard leadership role. Are there any um, major learnings or takeaways or thoughts or advice that you could kind of share based on that experience? Yeah, I, I would say maybe I had a bit of an advantage because the, the troops, that, some of the troops, not all of them, certainly the command element and, and some of the troops that had that were involved in um, Operation Medusa, I'd been responsible for training. And, and the commander of the time, uh, General Dave Fraser, uh, had actually taken over from me as the commander of 1st Canadian Brigade here in Edmonton. So I knew him. I, I, we'd help. I, I'd been promoted at that point in time. So I'd help train his team, to, which was my old team, um, to, to get ready to deploy into theater. So I knew the people, I knew the, uh, the issues. We followed it for, fairly regularly back here. Um, in fact, it, uh, I'll tell this funny story. I think it's funny anyway, is that um, about a week before um, Op Medusa kicked off, uh, Dave Fraser was actually back in Edmonton on R&R. &R. Um, we were on a golf course, um, Northern Bear Golf Course, um, 
when he got a phone call uh, from theater sort of saying, uh, sorry, um, from theater saying, yeah, things are going faster than we thought and we need you to come back. Um, so he sort of literally put his golf clubs down, went home, got his, got changed, went to the airport and, and flew in a military aircraft mm-hmm. back to Afghanistan. But um, that, that was a, that particular operation was really required because there had been a buildup of insurgents in the Panjway area, the, the area that you talked to. And it was um, really determined that if, if, if they were going to protect the city of Kandahar, that they needed to kind of uh, drive that large group of insurgents. They couldn't let them get a foothold in this area. So, so that was the reason uh, that they had to take such an offensive-minded approach. When I got there and we, we got into, you call it Falcon Summit, we actually called it Bazooka, which is the, the Afghan translation of, of, of Falcon Summit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it very much was um, more towards the mind of, of setting the conditions so that the Taliban, the insurgents couldn't come back into that area, but more importantly was setting the conditions that we could uh, get the local population to go back into that area. So during Medusa, all of the locals um, went into Kandahar, right? They started living with their relatives, two or three families to a home. Um, you can only imagine the friction that there would be in that. So, mm-hmm. so part of it was, was getting folks back from living with their, their in-laws or their outlaws or whatever you call them and, and getting them back to their farms in time to plant crops, mm-hmm. right? That, that was key. Um, that if they were going to be able to, you know, get back into business, plant their crops, whatever it may be, and be able to get them to market and make money, we had to get them back into their, their villages by a certain time. So it was, um, it was an interesting dynamic because the troops that were responsible for doing that were the same troops who had just been in this violent um, conflict with insurgents, right? Mm. And so it's one of the things that we had focused the training on for all of our soldiers is the Marines used to call it a, a, a three block war. You know, in, in one case you're doing, you're within a, a three block radius, you're doing combat operations, um, you're doing um, humanitarian operations, or you're just doing security operations. So you, you've got to have that mental flexibility as a soldier and as a leader to be able to, to, to change how you're you're functioning in a very limited time and space, uh, and and so that was a big challenge, right? All of these folks who had been um, living in very rough and austere conditions, uh, who had lost some friends, uh, some through friendly fire, some through enemy fire, uh, they they really were in a difficult place um, mentally. Um, and so part of the leadership skill at all levels and, and the leadership of that particular battle group at the time uh, was a, were very strong individuals. They were all from the 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, really capable individuals who, even though they had taken some significant losses, uh, they really were able to sort of change their mindset to, um, to, to, be, to deliver the, the right effects on the battlefield, I would say. But... It, it does take the leader at the top to be able to clearly distinguish where they are, what, what the outcomes are you're trying to achieve, uh, and then to be able to 
to clearly articulate that to soldiers so that they understand what it is and and how you expect them to act on the ground. But it's um, yeah, it, it is challenging because once you're you're kind of in a free fire zone, um, you know, there, there's bullets flying both ways. It is really really hard to then change your mindset to say, uh, you know, it's it's talk first, ask questions later, as opposed to you know, you're, you're under this terrible um, personal threat of, of injury or death. So, yeah, the, the leadership challenges are there. But as I say, the, the, the folks who were in, in pro- providing those, those leadership, uh, in those leadership positions in the battle group were, were really capable. Um, and I would say for the vast, vast majority of them, um, all of them rose to the occasion. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you, I, you, I just can't imagine... Um, yeah. You know, somebody who has very little exposure to, to something like that. But so leadership is a pretty common theme throughout your entire career, seems like. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you seem like a natural uh, leader. And so I'm wondering, um, so through your military career, I'm assuming that you had kind of climbed ranks, you know, f- so from junior officer to senior officer, then up to major general. Um and you were also deployed in many different scenarios and situations, you know, so like you were in Germany, you were in Bosnia, you were in Kabul, you were in Kandahar, you were in Canada. And I'm wondering if you could shed any light on um, sort of leadership traits that remain consistent through all those ranks. And I assume as you climb rank, um, you're also commanding more staff, more troops. And so as that number grows, um, there's probably some variation there maybe in leadership styles or uh, there might not be. And then from situation to situation as well. And, you know, from my understanding, the um, places like Bosnia and Kabul and Kandahar were probably quite different than your time in Canada. And so with those various uh, scenarios as well, have there been leadership traits that have remained consistent for you across all situations that have seemed to to um, really work well as a leader? Um, or was there always sort of a need um for significant adaptation throughout those um, th- uh, those roles and deployments, Kyle, I, th- I think it's probably a combination of, of the two. I, I would say that that leadership, certainly from my perspective, um, is is based in large part on uh, the ability to establish personal relationships, right? And so I. I, I've given a leadership presentation and I, I show two distinct pictures, one at the beginning and one at the end. So the one at the beginning is me as a second lieutenant and it's in front of my my tank troop. So I was responsible for 15 soldiers and four tanks it was my job as a, as a brand new second lieutenant out of training. Um, fast forward to Afghanistan um, while I was responsible for, you know, uh, a few thousand soldiers and you know airplanes and all that kind of stuff. The the team I had a team of about thirteen people, fifteen people, who were then responsible to protect me, right? So mm-hmm. if if you think from second lieutenant where I'm responsible for, you know, as the youngest guy of the group almost, I'm responsible to take care of of these fifteen folks and and maneuver four tanks um, going forward. I, I've now got this group that is actually responsible to take care of me so that I can I can exercise those leadership functions. Right. So I don't have to worry about where I'm driving to. I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, what I need to go. Someone is thinking of, of all those things. Um, 
but through all of that, it's all personal relationships. Um, I like to think that the relationships I had with the 15 soldiers I had as a second lieutenant were no different than those 15 soldiers that were responsible to take care of me, my drivers, the guys who ran the vehicles, the, the close protection team. Um, they're all people, right? And, and you treat people the way you would like to be treated. Um, you realize that you're not the smartest person in any situation. And you realize that um, you can't do everything by yourself, right? You need to leverage the skills and the expertise of those people that you find around you. And, and I would say that those are the two things that have um, really, really, um, whether I wanted to or not, made me successful. When I went through life, it was never about, I need to do this so I can get promoted. You know, I need to do this, this job to, to, to round out my career. The only time I ever asked for a job um, was I was I was going to Bosnia in 2000, I guess it was, um, and I, was, I knew I was going to for about a year. And before I left, I said to uh, the senior officer that was in charge of Bosnia, the guy in, in Ottawa, and I said, when I come back, I want to work for you. And mm. uh, it was... Uh, he was a deputy chief of the defense staff, so the number two from an operational standpoint. The position doesn't exist anymore, but but at that time it did. And I, I said, I, I want to come back and I want to do this particular job. It was the director of operations for the Canadian Forces. And um, he looked at me and he said, uh, his name is, is uh, it was Major, at that time, Lieutenant General Ray Hano, and he went on to become the chief of the defense staff. He was an Air Force uh, pilot. And... He said, Tim, nobody's ever asked for this job before because it's a it's brutal. And I said, no, I, I know. But I've, at my level, at my rank, that's the job I would like to do when I come back. And I ended up getting it. Now, that just happened to be the job that was the, the, the center, you know, the epistorm, center of the eye of the hurricane. Uh, when I came back, I started the job, came back from Bosnia in 2001, started the job uh, in August, July, August of 2001. And, and of course, 9-11 happened in September. And um, so there I am uh, focused on how the Canadian military is going to respond to this threat, uh, mm -hmm. both in the United States, which led to our initial deployment in Afghanistan. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things that um, people who, who, try and plot their way forward and say, I want to do this job, I need to do that job. Um, those are, are people in my mind who uh, have, have the potential to be seen as uh, self-serving, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and I've always found that if, if, if you are part of a team, you support those individuals who are on your team, uh, that you, you try to make sure that they are as well-trained and as professionally developed as you possibly can, good things happen, right? Good things happen for the team. Good things happen for you. Uh, so that's kind of the approach I've always taken is, you know, don't focus on your on, on where you may go. Focus on, on the job you're doing today uh, and, and focus on the people you're working with today. And in all likelihood, you'll be successful. I, I, I mean, Tim, I, completely agree with that sort of leadership philosophy, but the, the challenge that I sometimes face um, or, you know, that I hear from other people is 
are those leaders who don't value those things, who don't value those personal relationships, who are, you know, you didn't use the word opportunistic, but I'll use that. But I think that's sort of what you're trying to say. Um, And they make it to those high positions, right? And so now you have young leaders looking at these people and they see the type of leadership approach that you you are talking about and they see the other kind of leadership approach. And it's hard for people to make sense of that, of like, what's the right way of going about things? Like, what do you have to say to those sort of younger leaders who are seeing almost like conflicting styles of leadership? Like, what's the difference? Like, what's sort of the, is there a long-term payoff with sort of the leadership style that you're talking about versus maybe the one who's more self-serving and more has more of a bullying approach or, or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I'll start by saying that, you know, part of what made me successful in the military was that the, the military has a very structured training system, right? And so there's, of all the time, 30 years I spent in, in the army, I was, I was away on formal courses for three years, mm. French, which clearly didn't take, <laughs> um, but but essentially, they send you back to school. So as a, as a captain, I went and learned how to do operational planning for six months. Right? Okay. Um, as, a, as a major, I went basically back to university. There's a college, a Canadian Forces College in Toronto, went with you know, 135, give or take, of you know, my closest friends and um, some international students. And, and we learned how to start to function at the national level, right? Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the exercises, you were put in positions which would be well above your pay grade, but but you learned um, how to operate and function with with people who you were peers, and and you needed to to work with them carefully and 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 focus on on everyone's success. And then at, at before you become a general officer, they send you back to school for an, for another year. Um, to sort of, it's like a postgraduate degree, really, in in strategic studies is the okay. way I would describe it. So um, that's on the academic side, and and then you spend a lot of time in the fields training, right? If you're mm. if you're not fighting, you're training, um, and so you have the opportunity. Um, American officer I served with in Australia used to always use the term "train to fail." When I first heard him say that, I thought, like, what are you talking about? He said, no, no. He said, Tim, you need to think about it from the standpoint that um, you need to push yourself in training to the point where you do fail, because mm-hmm. then there's some great lessons you can learn from that. Mm-hmm. If, if you never fail in training, you really don't know how far you can push yourself. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, the military has always had this, this tremendous professional development model uh, that, that has, I think, produced some, some very capable leaders. But I look at the Alberta Public Service, and it has not had that, right? Mm. And, and so one of the reasons I came back into this current job is I actually believed I would have the opportunity um, to make a difference, right? So um, we now have, and they're, they're short courses, but at least they're courses. We now have courses for um, new managers, uh, the Management Development Program. We've, we've put in place a supervisor's program. Uh, we've developed and run pilots for foundations for executive directors and we're restructuring the, the program for uh, ADMs. And, and the next one we're going to do is for senior managers so that, um, you know, as I describe it, managers, you're kind of leading a small team. Um, senior managers, you're leading teams of teams. 
executive directors and, and uh, ADMs are really starting to look up and out and do cross ministry, um, mm -hmm. you know, combinations of teams as they go as they go forward. So we're, we're putting in place some of those those constructs to actually give people the, the tools they need to be successful in their roles. The, 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 the thing that I actually, the positive thing I take out of your description and your question though, Rupesh, is that there are, there are now young people, young leaders in our organization who recognize bad leadership. Oh, for sure. Right? All the time. All the time. Yeah. And so the, my message to them is don't get discouraged, right? Mm. Do, do not get discouraged. Um, you know what the right things are and and we're you know through our professional development now in the APS is that we're trying to ensure that that people have those skill sets and and have the understanding to be successful leaders do we have bad leaders in the in the APS without question right absolutely we do but we've got some great leaders as well and and i think that's where we need to to focus on and um I remember an old, old sergeant saying to me during training once, you know, no one is completely useless, right? They can always be used as a bad example, right? And <laughs> and, and so I would, I don't think he was talking to me, but it could have been. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I think it's one was of those French? things. Was he French? Yeah. <laughs> he was from Quebec. He was from Quebec. Oh, well, uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> so, go figure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would I would say that um, we actually need to focus on the good. There, there will always be people who 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 um, are not functioning at the level we would like. And in some ways, it, it then falls upon to good leaders um, to sort of protect their their people from from that bad leadership. Right. Mm. It's 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 an added burden. Uh, but at the end of the day, it kind of comes with the territory. Uh, but, but, but just because there's bad leaders, we shouldn't, um, sink down to that level, right? Um, uh, what we want to do is make sure that we are absolutely, uh, have the highest standards for ourselves, model the way, you know, we always talk about that in, uh, as, as our leadership principles, um, lead from the heart. I mean, you've, you've heard all yeah, of that yeah, before, yeah. Yeah. but, but that's where I think we need to focus on is. There, there will be bad leaders. I would say there's probably less of them now than there were before. And, and they're becoming more obvious because um, as we've kind of restructured the APS and we've reduced a lot of the, um, the, the people in management roles, uh, it's harder to hide, right? And, and it becomes more obvious that, that people are not good leaders. And it's not that we need to get rid of them. We need to help them to become better leaders. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, the, uh, yeah, and that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, and I'll test this with you, Tim, whether you feel the same way. But I find that when there's when are, when there are those leaders that um, that embody the kind of philosophy that you um, have practiced and preached, I find that you almost get a, a wider base of followers. And and why that can be important is that when you require something of them or there's a task to be done, they're more likely to want to do the task, which has so many more tangible performance benefits than sort of begrudgingly having to do the task because it's a leader who's just, you know, 
doesn't embody those kind of same uh, principles right. and has much, a much more narrow, narrower base of followers. Would you, would you kind of maybe agree to that or maybe challenge that a little bit or? No, no, I, I, I think I would agree with that. It's, um, I, I think good leadership attracts people. Yeah. And, and, and while you can't, you know, as you move around, you can't necessarily pick up um, all the people that work for you and take them with you every time you go. Um, what it, it does do is it, it, it builds a network of supportive individuals and people who are um, kind of like-minded and, and they're looking for the same standards. So even, even you know, on, on the day, um, yeah, absolutely. If, if, if I need something and it's going to be over the weekend, um, you know, I believe that as long as I explain to people why it's important, why we need to do it on the weekend, what's driving the timelines, that, that people will um, willingly um, deliver. Mm. Uh, but you're right. If, if, you've, if you've beaten them like, you know, uh, you know treated like, like galley slaves and, uh, and that kind of stuff, they're not going to want to do that and they will find reasons not to deliver or they'll deliver a product that really is, is not particularly good. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think there is an investment in people that will um, be returned, you know, multiple times over. Again, if you if you treat them well and, and you you explain to them what it is you're trying to do and, and what you're trying to achieve at, at the same time. There's some long-term benefits to having that approach of, of treating people correctly as you, as you go up through this through the system. And and I'm limited, right? I came into the public service late. I, I've only been in it for you know total of about 11 or 12 years now. Um, but still, there's people in in a lot of departments that I feel comfortable to reach out to, right? And because I've worked with them before and I've worked with them in in challenging times. Um, and if, if, you, if you don't have that, if you haven't built that network, if you haven't built that reputation as being a good leader, it, it can be challenging. And, you know, the example I would use of that is, you know, I, I, as I say, joined the public service 2008. I was, I was focused in this weird little world of electricity, right? Kyle would, would understand this. It's, it is a weird, it, it's a, a very eclectic little group of people, both in the public service and, and out in industry. Um, hard to understand whether it's, you know, how electrons flow or, or mm -hmm. uh, how, how bills get, get paid. It, it's just a weird place. In, in 2011, I, I got picked by uh, uh, Brian Manning, who was the chief deputy at the, of the day, uh, to lead the response to the Slave Lake fires. Right. Mm. So so overnight, I've, I've got 10 ADMs from other departments uh, who are working with me to figure out how government is going to respond to Slave Lake. I didn't know any of them. Right. I did not know one of them. And I thought to myself, this is going to be ugly. Right. And so I had to spend a lot of time at the front end, you know, to to build, to gain their trust, to 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 work together to make sure as a team we were going to be able to deliver. Um, I always I always thought to myself, if I'd been in the public service longer, if I had built a wider network, that would have been a much easier job. And I, I think that's what you need to focus on um, as young leaders: is how do you build those relationships? How do you how do you build those friendships? that will serve you in times of crisis when you, when mm -hmm. you go forward. Right. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, no, and and that's 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 actually a really really great example. Thanks for sharing that because it, it just exemplifies sort of how you didn't have to use your positional authority, like you were you were mandated with having to do this task with leading this task force, um, but you didn't have to use that because you really worked on the relationships. But I think the other, I think I think I think it's great. You know, you're talking about uh, folks staying in the organization and building those relationships, but you also gave a really good example about yourself, Tim, in that. Um, you came from a different. You came from the armed forces. Was new to the public service, essentially, and you were able to sort of use those skills that you had acquired in the armed forces and quickly put them into into use, right? To to build those relationships. So it's not like it's just because you go to a new organization that you can't, you know, build trust and you can't create those relationships. I think it's just the skill of knowing how to do so is is even more vital. You're right, but but there, I will tell you, there's a piece to that that transition that I made from military wearing a uniform to, uh, to Alberta public service is that um, there were there were people who were very concerned when they found out an army guy was coming to be their ADM, right? And and they went, whoa! And what they had read on the internet or what they had followed, you know, heaven only knows, but. Uh, there were people who came up to me, you know, months later and said, well, you're, you're not at all what we expected. Right. And and I think part of being a good leader is understanding kind of your audience. Right. Understanding the people you're going to work with. Um, and not to say that I, I, I was a Jekyll and Hyde and changed dramatically how I was going to deal with people. I, I don't think I did that, but I, I know there are some of my friends who were in the army would never be able to make the transition to the public service. Why is right? that? Well, they want to be called sir, right? Oh, okay. Okay. You know, yeah. There was always this hierarchy and, mm. you know, when, when, when I joined the public service and, you know, the, you know, the, the administrative support says, Hey Tim, how are things this morning? Um, it, it didn't fuss me at all. Mm. Right. That, that I had gone from the day before someone was calling me general or sir to someone saying, you know, using, you know, my Christian name. Um, you kind of go, that's life. This is the organization. You know, if you can't take it, you shouldn't be here. Mm. Um, but, it, but it is one of those things. People have, a, I think some people had this, um, this understanding of everybody in the Army is kind of like that Marine drill course sergeant, right? Right yelling and screaming at people and demanding commanding control style kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that actually was the army I joined in 1977. Mm. Um, It's not the army I left in, in 2008. Right. Mm. There was an expectation of all my soldiers that if, if I'm going to put you in harm's way, they need to know why they want to know why. And actually they have a right to know why. You know, to, to be able to explain to them, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to achieve. Um, you know, we're in Afghanistan not to go out there and, and, and like not to say, Kyle, this is what, you know, Vietnam was kind of like. But this isn't about body counts. This is about setting the conditions so that girls can go to school. Right. That that women can get um, um, medical treatment that's at the same level as men. So when you when you explain people what it is you're trying to achieve, they're they're much more willing and able and and 
yeah, willing and able to to accept that vision and to be part of of how to drive that forward. And the same would apply. I would I think when I when I came into the Alberta Public Service, I sat down with with my team and it was a very small team. I went from 12,000 commanding the Army of the West to 32 <laughs> in the electricity division. Right. Uh, so it was it was a small group, uh, but it gave the opportunity to actually sit down and say, this is me. This is this is Tim Grant. This is how I work. This is my expectations. This is what I want to do. Um, and at the end of the day, I think. I think we and the team as a whole were pretty successful with with some of the challenge we we faced at the time. Uh, so it's yeah, rambly answer to to that question, but it's yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, it's all about um, tweaking. Maybe that's the word I would use. Is, is everyone has a leadership style, but as you deal with different kinds of people or different sorts of groups. How do you tweak your leadership style so that it really does resonate with the people you're leading at the time? It comes back to being connected to those people, like you yeah. keep saying. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Oh, sorry, it looks like you want you look like you want to say something. No, no, just it's um so Tim Repesh and I talked about in an earlier episode sort of um what the historic uh traits were for um that were associated with people who were masculine and, and were leaders. Um, you know, and uh, so those traits usually were things like they were assertive, they were aggressive, they were stoic. Um, and there was always a bit of an air of machismo or bravura or something there. And then we sort of had a conversation about, well, who were the best leaders um, in our experience in our lives? And hardly any of them had any of those traits. And so there was this real, um, evolution, I think, of maybe what it used to be or, or, or what it used to, um, what people would try to assume when they were trying to be a good leader versus what it is now. And I, I think one of the most common themes through good leaders now is what you mentioned about being able to be personal with people and and having the um, mm -hmm. these relationships that are personal, where you feel like that person is looking out for you and they in turn... Um, and then you in turn look out for them. And I was uh, just reading some stuff on guys like Abraham Lincoln or um, even um, Ulysses S. Grant or FDR. Or, um, and they all had a lot of those traits as, as well. So I, I think that conversation around what is a good leader and even masculinity in modern times has really, really shifted sort of speaking to your point. Yeah, it's, you know, Rapesh had, had sort of touched on this before. Um, well, when he was asking me if I, if I would come on and sort of giving some background on, on, on the conversations you were having. But I kind of look at it that, you know, when I was a kid growing up in sort of well into my teens, I, I would say um, th there was no focus on masculinity. You know, my oldest sister, and I told you how many I've got, uh, broke my nose when I was 12 years old. Right. <laughs> she was up, upset with something I had done. Go figure. Uh, punched me in the nose, bled like. A stuck pig but um you know so it, it in my mind it was you know i played hockey and baseball and and skied i was kind of there was a natural athlete in our family and i'm, I'm not that good but compared to my brothers and sisters i was fabulous um <laughs> you know so so there was that you know i had sisters who were lifeguards and swam and instructors and all that kind of stuff but i also had there were people in my family who were you know the academics Right. And they they didn't focus on on sports and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> it, and so kind of growing up, it was it's just the way people are. You can 
doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, doesn't matter if you're into sports or if you're in academics, everyone just kind of goes their own, their own road. <clears throat> I guess when I joined the military that, you know, you're in this, and I should say, I, I went to an all boys high school, which um, there's where I started to see a little bit of, um, you know, the, the, the macho side of things, you know, did you play on the football team? <clears throat> did you play on the basketball team? Um, you know, and if you weren't one of those groups, then then probably you weren't a, as important as as other people. But um, it, it's not that it was masculine, but it was um, can you take care of yourself? Mm -hmm. Right. It, it was more uh, along that uh, standpoint. But then joining the army, it's it's very much of <clears throat> and I would say I didn't look at it as it's a masculine thing because it's it's all men. It was are you fit enough to do your job, right? So on, on you know, your morning run for physical training, um, you know, can you, can you lead the group or are you falling behind? So there was an expectation as a young officer that you would be the leader. You would be able to, maybe not the fastest person run, but you were capable of being in kind of the top tier of, of whatever organization you were in. Now, when I when I joined, I will tell you, general officers might have run and there was probably a few fit ones, but you didn't see that it was they were off somewhere else. And and and, and you didn't expect that. By the time I left the military, <clears throat> uh, there was an expectation that you did exactly what soldiers did from a fitness standpoint. Right. Mm. So there was, um, you know, before I could deploy to Afghanistan, I had to do exactly the same battle fitness test that every soldier did. If I, if I couldn't do it, I wasn't going. So um, I, I would say from my standpoint, it wasn't, and maybe I'm the odd one, um, that, that I didn't look at it as, is this a masculine organization, but are you capable of meeting the rigors of your job? Now, now without question, and you're seeing it in the news in a big way right now, um, there are there are people in the military and there always have been mm -hmm. who um, and I wouldn't call them masculine. I would call them misogynist. Right. Mm -hmm. That that women are treated poorly um, and clearly there's there some are. But I will tell you, I've I, I've met some some unbelievably uh, strong, smart, tremendous leaders who are women in the military. And <clears throat> I I don't see. I just can't rationalize in my own mind that anyone would say masculinity has anything to do with the way you treat women. Right. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think in some ways masculinity has taken on this negative connotation and probably rightfully so that, um, I mean, I, I don't want some to say you're masculine. What I want them to say is, you know, certainly when I was in uniform, <clears throat> are you fit enough to do the job? And I think those two concepts, get um, misconstrued, right? Can I do more push-ups than a woman? Well, probably not right now, but, you know, maybe I could have at the time. Um, but, like, who cares, right? Is that is that a measure of, uh, of masculinity? I don't think it is. Right? Well said. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about, uh, and you might roll your eyes at this, so I apologize. Um, I got to ask you about camel spiders, Tim. So I don't, no. so I saw a picture, I don't know when it was probably mid two thousands, maybe of 
some American soldiers who are holding their gun out, and there's three camel spiders hanging off the barrel of the gun. And the way that the picture's taken, these things look like they're 14 inches long each. Uh, and it sort of started this legend, I think, uh, particularly in North America around these camel spiders. And, you know, they would sneak into um, troops' um, sleeping bags at night and bite them, or they would chase troops across the desert. And I, I sort of looked that up a little bit. And uh, so, so camel spiders like to be in the shade, and humans cast shadows. And when humans move, their shadows move. And so the spiders would kind of be following their shadows. But uh, still, the image of one of those things chasing you across the desert would be terrifying. I'm wondering if you ever had any interaction with uh, a camel spider or if you have any stories around that stuff or thoughts on it in general. Be- before you say something, Tim, <laughs> this was like Kyle's like most pressing question. He's like, I got to ask him about camel spiders. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a bizarre answer to your very simple question is, I, I mean, I've seen camel spiders and, and certainly Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan would um, – whether it was they would keep camel spiders, you know, kind of as pets, um, scorpions, you know, you, I mean, they just, they would find them, they would keep them, feed them, whatever it is. So, um, but in, in Afghanistan, camel spiders didn't bother me okay. because I had spent two years in Australia. Mm. Um, I was on exchange and I was a, a, an, a, an armor instructor. So I taught uh, young officers how to, uh, be tank commanders. And Australia has nine of the 10 most poisonous um, things, insects. <laughs> Everything in, is trying in, to in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is It is messy. And so that's where I really was worried about, you know, you get up in the middle of the night because you have to go to the bathroom. And if you didn't roll your sleeping bag back, back up, you know, is a snake going to go in there or, or you oh, know, um, and in their cases, you know, it didn't have to be a big spider to be poisonous. They had... Uh, funnel web spiders and redback spiders, which are kind of, redbacks are kind of in the same category, I think, as um, black widow spiders. Uh, but those are what really scared me, um, the spiders and the snakes in uh, in Australia. So the camelbacks in, um, in Afghanistan, yeah, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> so, All right, thanks for entertaining my thought on that. Appreciate no, no, but but it's funny. What it did bring back is a is a memory. Is you know you go around and you visit the troops in the forward operating bases, and at Christmas of two thousand and six, um, you go around, and that's one of the occasions where I, I I did happen to see you know the the collection of uh, scorpions that the guys had <laughs> as as pets. But out, outside one of the um, uh, one of the tents was a Christmas tree. But the Christmas tree was a was an eight foot marijuana plant, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was all decorated, and um, you know marijuana was a was a cash crop in in Afghanistan, and it was it was growing everywhere. And these guys had simply chopped one down and put it outside. And anyway, unfortunately, I said, guys, it's got to go. Clearly, it's <laughs> the leaves kept disappearing. Is it? No, I wouldn't say that, but. <laughs> It probably uh, did. I'm oh, sure that funny. would never happen, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there. I, actually, I was just going to ask, like, sort of, what were some fun things that that troops would have experienced, you know, in Afghanistan or even yourself? Like, I'm sure there's got to be things that you guys would have done to take your mind away or to ensure that you can kind of just get through days, right? Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I did, and it, 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 it was. Um, it served multiple purposes for me. I, I said I had this group of about 15 uh, soldiers who 
kind of we we traveled around together. So we used to um, we used to have celebrate birthdays, <clears throat> right? And so there was an average about one a month, and uh, it didn't matter if it was an officer or a soldier, whoever's birthday it was, or if there were multiple birthdays. Um, we would have someone go to the kitchen and bribe steal. I don't know what they did, but uh, they would they would come back with a cake, right? And so we'd sit down after work and have a coffee and, and birthday cake, and we'd tell stories about what was happening at home and, you know, something just to relieve the stress and pressure of, of, of what was going on. Um, so it was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great way to find out, sort of take the pulse of, of what the guys were thinking and what was going on. Of course, they had friends in, in other units, and they would, you know, you'd be able to figure out what was happening. Um, so from my standpoint, it, it was great. You got to learn more about the soldiers you had. You got to celebrate an occasion, take their mind off of, of the issues. Because, you know, my group of soldiers um, had, had their own, um, I would say, they had their own challenges to deal with. I spent a lot of time on the road, um, you know, traveling from the airfield out to, to either into Kandahar to, to do business there with the governor or the police chief or whoever it may be, um, you know, going out to, to, to visit troops in forward uh, operating bases. <clears throat> but, but every one of those trips, um, we were a target, right? Mm. And, and so my soldiers, I would get in the back of a vehicle and I would go to sleep. That was that was my downtime because I'll come back to my day in a second. But but they were on high alert. Like for every time we were outside the wire, um, they had to be constantly alert. So anything that I could do when they were back inside the wire to, um, you know, make life easier for them, then that's what we would do. Okay. Um, but I would you know, I would get up at uh, about five o'clock in the morning, five thirty. My uh, some part of my team would either gather with me for a, a run or, you know, you'd put on uh, all your gear and go for a, a long march. Um, and, you know, your, but your day would start early. And, you know, by supper time, people in Ottawa, my boss at, didn't get up right in Ottawa because of the time change until about supper time. So I was then working mm-hmm. from, you know, supper till about midnight um, to deal with all of the stuff back in Ottawa. And, and so it, it became one of these very long days. So it was, uh, when I got in a vehicle and I could go somewhere and right, no stress, no pressure. I went to sleep and, and people look at me and say like, what? <laughs> I said, look, there's nothing I can do, right? I'm in good hands. Mm-hmm. And, and as a leader, you have to do that. Sometimes I trust you guys to do your jobs. Right. I trust you. You're going to get us from point A to point B safely. Um, and th- there's nothing I can do by staying awake and worrying or anything like that. We'll just uh, let the, the chips fall where they may. But it's uh, yeah. I can't anyway. even fall asleep on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I got nothing to worry about in an airplane. But I can't fall asleep. That's amazing skill. Yeah. It's uh, and I can fall asleep anywhere. My wife would say that, but it's uh, yeah. Has that changed? Or are you still? You no, it's asleep? uh, no. I can still fall asleep anywhere. Okay. Um, but it <laughs> but it actually still. started as a young officer, right? Because on a tank, uh, where you normally sleep is on the above the engine compartment. A, it's warm, it's particularly in the winter time, um, and it's flat, but it's hard steel. 
but it's better than sleeping on the ground, right? And so you sort of learn just to, you know, sleep when you can and, and work when you have to. My uh, my cousin, he's uh, he's in the armed forces right now. He's a physio. I mean, he always says that um, if if anything came down in the physios, then Canada's in trouble. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, he was saying that, like in his training, he said that they slept under the bed because they didn't want to. Uh, they slept on the floor because they didn't want to mess up their their kit and their bed or whatever because you know it's just so hard to get it back to where it originally was. So just going back to sort of you just sleep where you have to sleep. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard that before. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, the other thing that's, um, uh, before, I have a couple more questions and maybe, I don't know, Kyle, if you had anything more you wanted to ask or. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm just I, interested to uh, listen in here. I was just going to ask. Now, now that we're done with camel spiders. Yeah, I'm actually going to leave. I was talking about camel spiders. I was just putting up with the first 45 minutes to get to that. So I'll see you guys later. Yeah. Um, when you, you know, it's remarkable to me that you were saying, you would work when sort of your bosses in Ottawa would kind of come online and it was like sort of late hours. You work in the public service and you're sort of working, at, especially at a deputy level, working sort of at the pleasure of a minister or or the government. Like, did it ever cross your mind where it's just like, I'm I'm done with this. I need to maybe be, I need to maybe be in the political side of things. Like, did that ever, had that never crossed your mind? Because I'm, how could you have sustained for all these years just sort of having to be at the, you know, I lose this, I use this loosely, but sort of the mercy of somebody else's decision making. Um, it's a great question, and let me answer it two ways. Um, one is that that I I learned the hard way that um, my job as a public servant, whether inside the military or not, uh, is to provide the best advice available to elected officials, right, and and provide them with options. Um, you know. Fearless advice, loyal execution, as, as our premier would say. <clears throat> so I, I didn't always know that, but as I mm-hmm. said, I learned, I learned it the hard way and, and it, it stuck. But the other piece I would say is that, and I don't say this glibly, my skin is not thick enough to be an elected official, right? If, if you become an elected official, especially nowadays with social media, your entire life is in the public view and and there are uh, particularly on on twitter there are so many things that happen that are just in my mind uh inappropriate horrible i mean pick pick the words you want to use um but but i i I don't think i could manage as a as an elected official you know, mm. that 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 old army thing would come out. And you want to bop somebody in the nose. Right. And you go, <laughs> but you can't do that. It's, that. That's the wrong approach. So, no, I'm very comfortable that um, uh, I, I think the best role for me is is to be that planner, to be that thinker, to look at at what government needs, what elected official needs of any stripe, whether it's, you know, um, in, in this province, I have served both um with a, a conservative government, a UCP government, an NDP government. And I would say the elected officials are all the same. They're trying to do a great job in difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they follow what they believe is, is the right thing in, from their point of view. <clears throat> and, and I give them huge amounts of credit for um, the work they put in, the hours that they have to spend doing that. And, 
um, and what they put up with um, throughout all of that process. And that's, that's just not for me. That takes a very special kind of individual. And I, I know that it is not in my, uh, in my DNA to be able to, to do what they do. It's, I mean, it's, it, I think it shows your humility for you to say that and just your level of self-awareness to be able to express that because just, I mean, all your experiences that you've said, you'd think when you say you don't have the thick skin, it's just incredible. I think, I don't know what you're thinking, Kyle, but that's sort of where, where my head's going for you to be able to express. Yeah, so that. What does that say about my skin? Like I have paper thin skin. Tim, come on, man. What are you doing here? <laughs> Making us all look bad. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you kind of go into that. Um, I got a couple of, uh, you know, we got a couple of little, uh, I guess, rapid fire questions, um, if that's okay. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, so we did an episode where, where we kind of said who were the five people dead or alive that we would want to have a meal with. And so Kyle kind of gave his five. Um, I gave my five. Who would those five people be for you? Um, I would say first and foremost, the, the, the person that I would like to the very most who is alive is Tom Brady, the mm. qu quarterback for the, now the, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <clears throat> I, I mean, just to be able to chat to him about what it takes to be able to operate at, to be a leader. And, and everyone says that he is a fabulous leader, both on and off the field, but you know how he manages that. And to be able to perform at such a high level, at, at an age that's almost unheard of in in, in the NFL, so I, or in, I hate in pro Tom. sports. I hate Tom Brady, but I respect the heck out of him. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's so really good, but he's it. he's just oh man, just like he won all those Super Bowls, and every single time I was cheering against him. <laughs> but but he's just like you absolutely can't deny that he's the, he's the best of all time. Yeah. And I mean, how could he not be one of the best leaders? Right? I, I, I was yeah. going to say, and Kyle, you're talking to a diehard Patriots fan here. Oh, right? you're, I'm a Bears fan. So I'm, uh, yeah, so I don't really have much to talk about now. <laughs> um, yeah, well, and actually, your Patriots, Tim, were not very really good this year. So there's a little no, bit of schadenfreude in that, I think. No, they weren't for sure. But old uh, T. Brady looked pretty good in, in yes. Tampa Bay. Uh, I guess the others would be, you know, people that have interested me over the years is uh, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> You know, both as uh, as as a female leader of, of Great Britain, but also the challenges she faced um, during her tenure, including the the, the war in the Falkland Islands. Mm -hmm. um, another would be um, uh, Colin Powell, General Colin Powell. You know, yep. first mm -hmm. black uh, man to be the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and and Secretary of Secretary State. State. So, yep. <clears throat> you know, and and I, I've. I follow a lot of his, um, you know, philosophies on, you know, how to run meetings and, you know, how to be successful and those kinds of things. So, um, he's one that I would, I would love to spend some time with. Um, a couple who are not alive, maybe I would say is, uh, General George Patton. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I talk about him just because as an armor officer, you know, he was sort of the epitome of, maneuver warfare that we would call it in in the second world war and how he used his uh, uh his forces um you know i know there's there's you know he, he he wasn't perfect like like most of us um but wouldn't mind having a chat with him and the last one which may come as a surprise i would say would uh, be mother Teresa. Mm. um 
you know, just what she, how she struggled and what she did kind of in the slums of Kolkata, um, you know, for her entire life is just, uh, I, I think it's just something that, you know, the, you talk about humility and, and being humble and, and working to serve others. I mean, that was, that was her in space. So, yeah. So yeah, those would be the five. And that's kind of weird to go from Tom Brady to mother Teresa. <laughs> no, but... I think it's cool. <laughs> would you have these people together or one-on-ones? No, I think one-on-ones because there'd okay. be, I think it would be such a rich conversation with each one of them that um, if you had a, you know, a two or three hour dinner, I'm not th- sure you would do service to, to each of them in turn. So. Plus, like, what are Tom Brady and Mother Teresa going to talk about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, she could have been a big football fan. Maybe. Yeah, she probably would yeah. have been. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And I think even if you look at, you know, General George Patton and, and uh, General Colin Powell, they come from completely different worlds, right? There was, you know, you think back to the Second World War and, you know, one of my favorite movies is uh, Tuskegee Airmen, right? Which is about a, a black Air Force uh, squadron in the U.S., uh, but but the way, um, you know, black soldiers and, and servicemen were treated in the Second World War, I, I don't think Patton could relate to, the, you know, the most senior general in, in the U.S. military being black. I, I, maybe he could, but it would be interesting to see how, how those would, you know, the juxtaposition of those two individuals. But mm. yeah, so. my my last question, Tim, is. Uh, what is a thing in life that you know for sure? Obviously, there's the circle of life, so that can't be an answer. But just what's another thing that you feel like has sort of made, remained consistent that you feel is is really true for sure? Um, well, it's kind of tied to the circle of life. So I'll, I'm going to take an easy out here and say um, your kids will always be your kids, mm. right? And so... You know, my two kids are in their 30s now. Um, as I say, I have a, a son who's a competitive bartender. I didn't even know that was a job, but uh, but but good at it. You know, a, a we're gonna be watching who, the Super Bowl at your house next year. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Your son just slinging drinks. Uh, yeah. And and my daughter running a successful chocolate business, right? And and but they're still kids. They yeah. you know. They, they still want to have a relationship with, uh, with their parents, which I think is, is lovely. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that's the, the truism I would say. It doesn't matter how old you get, how old your kids get. Uh, and, and I, I, I'm assuming it would be the same, you know, in, in your families, but mm-hmm. yeah, get used to it, guys. You, uh, <laughs> The, the days, certainly right now, the days of your kids uh, leaving home, you never see them again when they're 18. I don't think that's going to happen, and they're uh, they're around for the long term. At least yeah. mine are. Yeah. yeah. What's the name of, of your daughter's chocolate business? Uh, the Violet Chocolate Company. Okay. I mean, I don't want to brag, Tim, but we have like nine listeners, so she's probably going to get a bump here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the sad part is if you go there, you will never go back, right? I've had her chocolate, Tim. I bought, I bought a couple of bars. It's excellent. Like, it's yeah. really, really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. I'm going to check into that. Well, Tim, thank you so much. Honestly, it's truly been an honor. Um, I know you and I have talked in the past, but just to have you on our, on our conversation, be for you to be able to share a lot of things that you shared with everyone today. Um, Thank you for your service. I I think that, you know, it's quickly, it's quickly to just dismiss that, even though you've been retired for such a long time, but just the fact that you've kind of, you've not kind of, you have continued your service um, in the Alberta public service. So thank you for your service. And again, just truly appreciate you as a person and 
appreciate you joining us today on our show. Yes. Thanks, Tim. I got to tell you guys, this has been a, it's been fun. It, it's been a pleasure. And um, I, I'm not sure the last time I've had like an hour and a half go by this fast, um, but it's, it's good. And I, and I appreciate you uh, thinking that I may have something to contribute and hopefully the nine people that listen to your <laughs> podcast <laughs> will, <clears throat> will get something from it as well. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tim. Alrighty. Take okay. care guys. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye.